In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and God, Amen. Alright, so today we're supposed to start chapter 6. So before we do that, let's just make a quick summary to know where we are in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 1 was the first vision where St. John saw this vision on earth. The Lord appeared to him and he talked to him about the state of the seven churches on earth. And, and then the second vision, which started at chapter 4, uh, St. John was taken up to heaven. He ascended, you know, he went to heaven. We don't know how, whether in the body or outside the body, we don't know how. And then chapter 5, we talked about the throne, or St. John talked about the throne and described the throne of God. And we compared the vision of the throne between uh, what St. John saw, what uh, Ezekiel the prophet saw, and what Isaiah the prophet saw, and what Daniel saw, and compared between them. And then, now we st- start chapter 6 with the sealed book, and then each seal is being opened or broken, and we're going to see the different events that are going to happen because of those seals. And then, after the seals, at the seventh seal, we start seeing the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls, and then the end, and the heavenly Jerusalem. So that's basically, we're st- we started seeing the the major pro- prophecies about the end of the world, and describe that. The way, you know, the fathers like to see this book, some of them describe that the seven churches, again, cover the history, or the sequence of the events on the church from the beginning, from the Church of the Apostles, all the way to the end times when the Antichrist is going to come, and uh, the state of the Church at that time. Uh, The other way to see it also that the seven seals, especially the first four seals, describe the state of the Church uh, throughout history, until the end times, and we're going to see today why they're saying that with the four uh, horsemen. And then when it comes to the seventh seal, it's like getting into more magnifying glass and focusing more and more toward what's going to happen at the end days and God's warning to people at the end, end days to see what's going to happen. And hopefully they would repent, but they will not repent. All right. So, again, chapter 5 en- ended that there was a scroll next to this one who's sitting on the the throne and when St. John was crying because he couldn't open the the scroll or find anybody who would open the scroll one of the elders, the 24 priests came and told him why crying look toward the lion coming out of the tribe of Judah and when he turned around he found the lamb slain and he was the only one that's capable of holding the scroll and we said that the scroll can be uh, God's plan for humanity can be the book of life with those who are uh, saved and uh, it's written on it can be the Old Testament and the New Testament or can be God's plan for salvation and we talked about that in detail okay. let's start chapter 6 and see how each seed is going to be opened and the impact of each of these seeds on us and how we're going to try to understand Again, the references that we're following are four references. Uh, the book by Abu Nathar Siaoub. It's up there, upstairs in the library. We have like 30 copies. 
uh, or 20 copies upstairs. Uh, sermons by His Holiness Pope Shenouda in the early 70s. I think when he was still a bishop. Uh, sermons by Abu Dawood Lamai from uh, St. Mark Heliopolis, Cairo. And sermons by Abu Antonius Fikri from Fagela. Okay. All right, so can, uh, can we read the first horseman? The first two verses. Any volunteers? Now I saw on the rainbow in one of the scales a hundred one before living creatures saying with the voice of thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to Okay. So if these events represent things that are going to happen in the future, God is not concerned about revealing to us the future. What he's concerned about, about is when he reveals the future to us, what are we going to do with it? You know, If he tells you, for example, that in, in 10 years you're going to be in such and such state, what are you going to do in the, you know, until those 10 years? For example, he's going to tell you you're going to be famous, successful, you know, uh, big doctor or big, you know, lawyer or big accountant or whatever, and you're going to have a big practice, everything. What am I going to do with that? Is that going to be a motive for me to to work, or I know that this is going to happen, so I take it easy and relax, and sit down and do nothing. In these events, we're going to see that there are few things that may not be comforting might be scary a little bit. Uh, we're going to hear about famines. We're going to hear about death. We're going to hear about martyrdom. We're going to hear about a lot of these things. But before God reveals any of these things, He wanted to make us 100% sure that He is the one who's holding the scroll. He's the only one who can open the seals. And He is the one who's going to open them at the proper time. And we all know that God doesn't do anything wrong. So when He opens a particular seal at a particular time, this is for a purpose. It's under His control. So even later on when we're going to see famine, we're going to see death, we're going to see all these things, it's by God's control and it's within limits. It's not widespread. It's, you know, without control. We hear stories about earthquakes. We hear stories about Huge disasters happen, and we find, for example, I remember this particular story, one of the earthquakes in Iran. An old lady, a 93-year-old lady, found alive after being buried under the debris for four or five days. A lot of young people died. Out of old people, this 90-some-year-old lady dug out alive after starving for three or four days. Why? Because everything is with a precise measure. Even if it looks like widespread disasters like the you know tsunami or like the Katrina or whatever but everything is with a precise measure and nothing outside its place and that's why the preparation that took place in chapters 4 and 5 before we start the events from chapter 6 on now the first seal the father said that the the first one the one here when he says uh, and one of the four living creatures like a sound a sound of thunder saying come and see they say that uh, they tend to believe that this is the lion because again that creature or that you know cherub is declaring 
something great, some victorious event, and the lion is the one that represents Christ in his victorious state. So they believe that this is the lion that he was declaring the announcement of that particular uh, horseman. So the horse, the when the seal is open, the horseman is himself is, and I saw and behold a white horse, and he sitting on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Guess who is this horseman, and who is the horse, and what is he doing? Again, he's a white horseman. Is not the white in shining armor, uh, but he's a white horseman, wearing, uh, riding on a white horse. He had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This should be the easiest to guess. The easiest to guess. Who conquered, and who was victorious? Jesus. Jesus. Exactly. Right. Where? When? When did he conquer, and whom did he conquer? Talking about the past. Whom did he conquer? The devil, and he conquered him where? On the cross. But what does it mean here? And he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is continuous, and it's going to last. So Christ's victory is not limited to what happened on the cross. Christ's victory is continuous and is going to last forever. I wonder how is that going to happen? How is Christ is going to continue to conquer the devil all the time? Any ideas? Through his believers. Through his believers. Through, through us. Through you and I. It's not through somebody else. It's not through, you know... Only Marimina and, you know, Baba Krollos and all these wonderful people. No, it's through you and I. Christ every day can conquer the devil through you and I. Now, the trick is, here Christ is wearing, you know, I'm sorry, riding a horse, right? So this horse represents who? Represents us, right? Have you ever seen a horse going to a battle and deciding how to fight the battle on his own? And the, the you know the knight or the you know whoever is riding on the horse wants to go this direction, but the horse with his own intelligence wants to go that direction and wants to take that maneuver instead of what the horseman wants to do. We do that. We're the horse, right? You and I, each of us, in our own situation, are the horse that Christ is riding to fight the devil with. Right? And as a good horse, we're supposed to be totally obedient, totally under the control of the horseman, so he can overcome and he can win the battle. Right? Imagine the, the horseman is trying to charge into the battle, but the horse hesitates and stops. What's going to happen to the horseman? It's going to fall over, right? So... If we want the Lord to conquer in our life, our attitude has to be of complete obedience and we have to let Him ride us freely and control us freely 
as he wants. If he tells us to fast, we need to fast. If he tells us to be, you know, uh, not doing certain kinds of things, we're not supposed to do it. Why? Because as a horseman, he knows what's best and what is the best attitude to win the battle. Otherwise, we run the battle our own way and we're not going to allow him to win. So the father said that uh, the horse can be the church or can be you and I. And of course the horseman, we said it's the Lord. And actually if we jump to Revelation 19.11, we're going to find something that solves the puzzle for us. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he sitting on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's of course the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. All right. So we go back here. And a crown was given to him. So what is this crown given to him? We gave Christ the crown, right? Of what kind? Of thorns. Right? And he earned a crown of what? Of victory. Because he was victorious. And in the old days when uh, a leader of an army or, you know, go, comes in victorious to the city, they put, you know, give him a crown and they big celebrations for him. So him as the head of the church and his, him, his victor, you know, his, him being victorious, he received the crown of victory on our behalf. Unfortunately, when he was on the cross, we gave him a crown of thorn. Why, why is he uh, not capitalized? The age, but in like Revelation six three, he's capitalized. Why in that situation? And he sitting on it had a bow because we're going to see that the horse, in multiple cases, represents humanity, represents humans in general. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Why is that? That's a very good question. I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know why. I wouldn't know why he is not uh, maybe in different. Uh, uh, that's same translation. I I'm not sure why. That's a good point. Is the Greek equivalent to a capitalized he versus small he? Not my area of specialties. I don't know Greek. I barely know Arabic and English, so <laughs> not Greek yet. Anyway, what is the bow that he has? What's the weapon that Christ is using to, in today's war? But there's one weapon, love, yes, but all these are captured into one place. It's called what? Small book. The Bible. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Bible. It's God's Word, right? It's God's Word, basically, that He's using, you know, He's throwing His darts into people's hearts and capturing them this way. And He's also overcoming the devil by using the you know the Bible and as we approach Lent one of the very first you know Sundays of Lent talks to us about what the 
temptation on the mountain and Christ himself using the Bible to repel the devil and conquer the devil. So for us even his you know the Bible is an you know the tool to overcome the devil. So that's the first first horseman. We're going to find that the first horseman is the only good horseman. This is the nice, white, bright horseman. The next three starts getting a different picture and starts going to be completely the opposite. And actually the fathers look at the next three horsemen and they say this is the devil's attempt to conquer the church and destroy the church. So we'll look at each one uh, separately. But before we do that, what we want to do is read those three horsemen quickly, go back to the Gospel of St. Luke, read what the Lord said about the end of the days, and relate the three horsemen to God's words Himself about the end of the world, and see how they're going to relate together, and the tribulations that we're going to see in this world. So, any volunteers to read the next three horsemen? Yes, please. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come and see. And another, a red horse, went out, and power was given to him sitting on it, to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and lo, a black horse, and he sitting on it had a balance in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A chinex of wheat for a denarius, and three chinexes of barley for a denarius, and do not hurt the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him sitting on it was Death, and Hell followed with him. And authority was given to them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and by the beasts of the earth, beasts of the earth. Okay, that's that's it. That's so. These are the three horsemen, as we can see: red, black, and pale. Right. Now let's jump to the Gospel of Saint Luke, chapter twenty-one, verses nine. Oops, sorry, chapter twenty-one. Verses 9 to 19. Alright. Some other volunteers? Since the clock is moving this way. But when you hear wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For all these things must first occur, but the end is not at once. And he said to them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in different places, and famines and plagues. And there shall be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and curse you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall return to you for a testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. 
and you shall be betrayed also by your parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and they will cause some of you to be put to death. And you shall be hated by all for my name's sake, but there shall not be, but there shall not a hair of your head perish. By your patience, you will gain your souls. Okay, that's, that's it. So, if we if you look at your Bibles and look at the first horseman, right, and the red horseman, it's about wars, death, you know, killing and, and, and martyrdoms and so on, right? Which is the same thing that the Lord has said in Luke 21.9. If we go to the, the third horseman, which is the black horseman, talks about famine and so on, we find... You know the same thing: earthquakes, you know, famines, plague, plagues, and, and so on, right? So that's the third horseman, and then the fourth horn, horseman, which is about heresies and so on, will find the same thing and being persecuted for God's sake. <coughs> Thank you. So Christ has summarized to us what's going to happen, and Saint John sort of giving us the details of these events, or describing the same thing in a different form so now the explanation becomes clear for us what's going to happen and what we're going to go through what the church is going to go through until the end days just a quick question several verses say power was given to him the horseman yes power from God very good question very good question does anybody know the answer to this question Can you go back with your memory and try to remember the story of Job? Who gave him the authority to try Job and to what limit? God. So here the authority is given to him by God. Why? Because sin brings death and destruction. Right? And when people are living in sin, God's grace is going to leave them and they're going to be left to what they're living in, what they enjoy, which is sin. And inherently, the devil comes, he, he gives you the immediate joy, but he also takes from you peace, he takes from you uh, comfort, he takes from you uh, all the nice things that God gives. So you end up living a miserable life. And then, because God's grace has left the people, the devil is going to continue striking them and, and hurting them. But also, that's within limits. And that's what we said from the beginning is that all these are happenings after the Lamb is opening the seal one at a time in a controlled manner. Despite the word is given to the devil. If you remember Christ said the ruler of this earth is the devil, right? God is still the one who is in control. God is still the one who calls the shots as they say. He's not going to let anything happen without his permission. That's why we, we find it unacceptable for people to go and seek help or, or, or seek knowledge from place other than, you know, God. Like, for example, those who consult, you know, tarots, cards, spirits, you know, play lottery, all these things. They're seeking help and they're relying on other sources other than God. The one who's really in control is God. And we insult him by going in and seeking some, you know, to depend on somebody else. Okay. Alright. And 
When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature come and see. Okay, and the second beast in this case, the second living creature, uh, the father said that uh, it might be the, uh, the bull because that stands for the sacrifices that's going to be offered for Christ at this time, that each of us are going to be offering ourselves a sacrifice. So the bull most likely is the same creature who's saying, come and see. Okay, And another a red horse went out and power was given to him sitting on it to take peace from the earth. And that they should kill one another and they what and there was given to him a great sword. Again, given to him uh, and was given to him to take peace and was given him a great sword and he had opened okay. So this is basically the third be the second horseman and it presents the martyrdom and the persecution that's gonna uh, happen to the church. There are different ways to look at these horsemen. Some fathers look at these horsemen as they're happening in parallel. Others look at it as one happening after the other. So they say that the first horseman happened in the church of the apostles. And after the church of the apostles came the persecution. And after the persecution came, came the heresies and so on. So they try to give it a sequential occurrence. Others say that the three of the, you know all the horsemen are happening at the same time because when Christ is you know conquering and to conquer that's going to last forever. So all these horsemen are parallel to each other; they're happening, but one of them takes sort of a peak at one time versus the other. Like the devil is going to going to see the devil changing his tricks on how to destroy the church in different times. At the beginning of the church, he was trying to destroy it by martyrdom. Later on, he's going to use different methods. Right. So here the devil is given an authority to kill people by the sword. And again, that was limited authority and limited time to do that. Now the question is, here it says to take peace from the earth. However, Christ promised us and said, if you all, you know, pray the, the gospel of the third hour, my peace I give to you. So how does this work? Who's stronger? You know, God who said I'll give you my peace or the devil who's going to take away the peace? Or how, we, how can we reconcile both of them? How can he be given authority to take away peace from the earth? And Christ told us, my peace I give you. Not as the word gives you, I, you know, I do. Which I already give the answer, so. God's peace is internal peace. The devil is going to, is allowed to take away the external peace. Paul and Sila were persecuted, were thrown into the jail, but they were still in peace and they were praying and they were singing and they were happy in the middle of the jail. God's peace did not prevent them from going to jail. When St. Peter was in jail, he was so, you know, comfortable that he was sleeping and the, the angel had to punch him to wake him up. Okay? So, that 
a different kind of peace. The devil is going to take one kind of peace, but if we have God's internal peace, none of this is going to matter. Okay? In Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So that's... The peace of God is in our hearts and our minds. It's not an external peace. A lot of times we seek the external peace as a sign of calm and comfort. So when the church is persecuted from the outside, we say, oh no, there's no peace. We don't look at the internal peace. Where are we? How are we taking all this? The third seal... He opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, come and look and see. And I looked, and lo, a black horse, and he sitting on it had a balance in his hand. Well, this is basically, you know, as it says here, this is famine and death, right? And the father said that this is most likely... The, the creature who said come and see is the man because uh, of the famine and the, the hunger that's going to be spread and here and it had a balance in his hand a balance means that everything is being done in a careful manner and the father said that this can be a representation of an actual famine food for example, imagine, you know, the avian flu spreading and nobody is allowed to eat chicken. At the same time, mad cow disease, you know, striking at the same time and nobody's allowed to eat meat and food with Tamiya become, you know, the most favorite food for everybody. Christians and non-Christians, you know, fasting and non-fasting, right? Then becomes food becomes with a balance, right? In a way, we're all imposing ourselves this balance by following diets and doing all this kind of stuff, but, you know, uh, that's, that's a different story. The other aspect to look at this black horseman and the famine is uh, it's a spiritual famine. And God's word is going to be rare and it's going to be given with a measure. And it's going to be hard for people to find the true meaning of God's word. And we look around us today and we find that this is really happening. There's a lot of people who talk about God but in a very distorted way. And for those people who really want to hear God's word and really want to know who God is, becomes very hard for them to find it and to seek it. So the, this black horseman can be a physical famine and can be a spiritual famine. And I heard the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, uh, Shonix of wheat for a denarius and three Shonix of barley for a denarius. Now, um, this means that denarii actually is a wager of a, you know, of a person working in the field for a whole day. So you toil for a whole day and then again you get something like half a pound or a pound of wheat. That's not enough for, uh, for a person. So that's one eighth of a, a measure which is like uh, not even enough for a, an adult to eat. And the barley is the food of the poor people, and that's still very expensive as well. If you remember in today's gospel, the boy had 
five uh, loaves of barley bread, right? which was the poor, you know food of the poor people. So that says that people are going to work hard and toil, but they can barely make it, you know, enough for them to survive on. But here's the one comforting condition. And do not hurt the oil and wine. What's the oil and the wine? Very good. The, the oil it presents the act of the Holy Spirit because most of the sacraments, we use oil for the sacraments that represents you know the act of the Holy Spirit so that's very good and the wine represents communion so though there is a famine though there is you know hunger on earth however the true faith is not affected so if you're really looking for the true faith it's there the issue is where to find it and how to find it of course as we said God is the one who's in control. The devil would like you to think that he's in control. He's the one who's running the show. If you don't follow him, you're not going to get anything. You're going to lose everything. But in reality, God is the one who's in control. Again, go back and read Job and figure out or look at the sections when God was ordering the devil. You can do this, but don't touch his body. You can, do, you can touch his body, but do not harm his soul. Very, you know, this precise commands on what to do and what not to do. Same thing here. Very precise commands. Do not touch, do not hurt the oil and the wine. Right? So we know that our sacraments are never going to be affected. Our communion is never going to be affected. And it's always going to remain there. Where else we saw oil and wine being used together before? In the New Testament. Remember the Good Samaritan? When the person was hurt and he found him, what did he use to for, you know, medi- medications? Oil and wine. Wine for purification and oil for as a remedy. That's the same thing. If you go back to this parable, the oil and wine are also signs of the Holy Spirit and the body and blood of Jesus Christ are the tools for our salvation. So, if anybody is going to try to seek God, they're still going to find Him. It's not going to be easy, because again, darkness is going to be overwhelming. Again, the name of this horseman is a black horse, because again, he represents darkness and lack of knowledge of God. The fourth seal. Okay. So we said the first one, the first seal is the white horseman, that's Christ, who went out to conquer. The second one is persecution. <coughs> it's gonna, as we, we see, persecution will never end from the, you know, the history of the church. The third one is famine, spiritual, which basically is a sign of heresies and so on. And the last one, Last horseman, which is a very interesting one, and it's the pale horseman. Right? 
And here the fourth living creature is most likely the eagle because the, this horseman it presents a heresy. And actually some of the fathers say that this horseman alludes to or leads to the Antichrist at the end. And look, and I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him sitting on it was death and hell followed him. And authority was given to them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and by the beasts of the earth. Okay. So this is an awful horseman. If we look at this pale horseman, this particular translation of pale it's greenish right? uh, we all know that green is a sign of life you find a plant that's green means it's alive you find a, pl- a plant that's pale and yellowish means it's dead so this horseman had the shape and the form of life but in reality he was death and even in description here and the name of him sitting on it was death and hell followed him and the father said that this particular horseman represents the heresies that started by the Arian heresy and continued until the end and took away one fourth of the population there one of the most famous heresies that followed the Arian heresy is what? Anybody knows? Nastur and that was located into where exactly in the world? And actually in the Arab Peninsula and Islam is sort of a descendant of these heresies. So in a vague representation, this horseman represents uh, these guys. And as you can see, a pale horse, greenish-like, their famous color for flags is green. Well, but they're not really green. They do try to present sources of life and alternative way to live, but in reality, they are death and hell follow him. But they have a limited authority. All these heresies, all these evil activities have a limited authority. It's not unlimited. It's very limited authority. Unfortunately, it's the big authority. Fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, hunger, and death, and by the beasts of the earth. So it's persecution. Hunger can be physical against starvation or can be spiritual starvation. When people are start from knowing Christ, when people are start from the knowledge of God, it becomes deadly. All you have to do, we're lucky that we were born in the faith and grew up in the church. Ask those who were not born in the faith and those who were born outside and then came to the faith. They tell you, if you don't know God, you're a dead person. Look at any person who separates themselves from the church and go and live outside. They become spiritually dead people. The devil makes you think that you're having fun and enjoying your life, but in reality, you are dying spiritually. And you don't realize it until, unfortunately, a lot of times it's too late. 
So, the main idea behind these heresies, these what appear to be green, but deny you from the true knowledge of Christ and the true knowledge of uh, Jesus, is basically going to lead to hunger and death. And to know exactly what we mean here, if we go to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. St. Peter here, oops, sorry, chapter 4, verse 12. St. Peter here is talking and he's saying, and there's salvation in no one, in no other one, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the devil is willing to let you believe in God. You want to believe in God? Fine. But on one condition, you do not believe in Jesus Christ as a Savior, and you do not believe that Jesus Christ has been, you know, came to earth and died for us, and was incarnate, and died for us. So you find heresies that come and say, oh, we believe in God, and we believe in Jesus, but He's not God, or He did not die on the cross, or whatever. Right? Jehovah's Witness, you know, Mormons, all these people, oh, Jesus is a great man, but He's not God. So immediately, these are part of this pale horseman, because, again, there's no other salvation except through Jesus Christ. So anything, any idea, any sect, any group who tries to take away salvation from us or tries to take away the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He is the Savior of the world, this means that they are heretics and they do not lead us to eternal life. Next question? Sure. What do the Mormons believe in them? Oh. Just in a, in a nutshell. The Mormons is one of the weirdest, weirdest cults I've read about so far. Uh, I think, for example, that Jesus and Satan were brothers, uh, and they, uh, when the gods got together to send, you know, against some Jesus, you know, on earth, the devil, you know, Lucifer became jealous, and that's why he started the war with Jesus. Uh, all sort of weird stuff. Uh, basically, their prophet is, you know, I think John Smith or something like that. Uh, he was belie- he was believing that he was seeing, getting the visions, and being told about uh, the true revelation from an angel named Mormon. That's what they call the Mormons. And uh, this angel would turn into like a lizard or, you know, salamander or something. So people don't see him. And but do they believe that Jesus was born from a virgin? It doesn't make a difference. They don't believe that he's God. Sorry? They don't believe that he's God. That Jesus is, they don't believe yeah, that Jesus don't believe in that. I know they don't believe in the Holy Trinity. Again, they can believe whatever they believe as long as they don't believe that Jesus Christ 
is God and he came on earth as a man and died for us on the cross to carry our sins and he resurrected right nothing else makes you know is important I'm just curious what yeah? Islam believes that Jesus was born of a virgin and you know everything they fall short of believing that he is you know God that doesn't make them right, a way to go to heaven with No, no, that's okay. Okay. So again, we saw that in every one of these horsemen, these are the three horsemen that the devil is going to use to attack the church. In every one of them, there was limited authority given to them. They did not have full authority. They were not uncontrolled. So this is something for us to think about when we hear about wars, we hear about famines, we hear about all this, you know, throughout history. Right? Uh, not to scare you, but you all heard about, for example, the avian flu and the impact of the avian flu. If it, you know, worst case disasters, 140 million people dying. It's a scary thought. You know, pandemic going throughout the whole world, in, you know, in days and weeks. The last major outbreak of flu killed 50 million people. This one they expected, you know, if it really goes out of hand, 100, you know, 40 million. Huge numbers. These countries can vanish. None of these should scare us as children of God because we see who is in full control of this. If we did not believe in God, if we, again, did not treat these events, even if we don't understand how it's going to happen, right? Uh, the main thing that we are seeing is that Christ is in full control of all of these events. So let the word go in, you know, and boil. And if the mountains, you know, fall and if, you know, everything happens, I fear no evil for thou art with me, right? Okay. So these are the first four seals and the first four horsemen. Not all the seals are the same. The fifth seal is a little bit different. Okay. Let's read what is the fifth seal is all about, and now we'll go to the explain that. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Until then, Master, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to each one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little time, until both their fellow servants and their brothers, those who, those about to be killed as they were, should have their number made complete. Okay. So this fifth seal talks about those who are already waiting, you know, under the altar, and they're ready to go to heaven. Okay. We believe that when the righteous people die, they are waiting in a temporary place called paradise. Okay, So, here it's called under the altar. But there is something very interesting here. Um, those uh, under the altar, the, uh, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. 
So does that mean that only martyrs are going to go to heaven? Like Wahid al-Amba Krollos, for example, or Al-Amba Brahm, or Abu Nabi Masih al-Manahri, or all these wonderful people, they're not going to go to heaven because they were not martyred? So how can we explain that? Not at this stage yet. Not at this stage. We talked about that early on. In a way, when we talked about being priests and kings, we talked about offering our bodies as sacrifices. Let's take, for example, any of those saints that we, you know we mentioned: Amba Brown, Baba Krolos, any of the, you know Amba Bola, Amba Antonius, Amba Pshoi, any of the wonderful saints that were not martyred. Didn't they offer their bodies as sacrifices? Do you think that there's any difference in spirituality between them and any martyr? Do you think they did not, you know, sort of quote unquote, die from the earth? while they were still living in it? What was any monk supposedly themselves the life on earth or in worldly life? Look at the end of their lives and then imitate them. Supposedly by definition. Look, the Bible, this is how, the, the Bible is telling us, look at the end of their lives and imitate them. That's why the church is very wise does not acknowledge any saint except 50 years after they pass away because we don't trust in judgment. We wait, give them a period, and then we study their lives and at the end of their lives, we decide whether they were righteous or not. But not today. Because today I can, you know, look a wonderful person in front of you and tomorrow I end up like, you know, Dimas, when St. Paul says, Dimas, he left me because he loved the world. So we can't take any person who's living today and judge. Theoretically speaking, yes, but these are the monks, right? They're in the desert. They're, you know, 5,000, you know, miles away from me. I'm living here, in, you know, in New Jersey. I want to know how to, how do I participate with these people and up to be un, under the altar as they are. That's my goal. Okay? The, the answer is not for all of you guys not to get married and to go to the monasteries. <laughs> okay? That's not the answer. But the answer is that we offer ourselves as sacrifices, either by fasting, by prayer, you know, by virtuous life. All these things are means for us to offer ourselves as sacrifices. Okay. And once you offer yourself as a sacrifice, spiritually, offering it as a physical sacrifice becomes a lot easier. If I only make a condition that the only way I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice is by martyrdom, Guess what? When really time for the sword comes, I'll be the first one to run away. Because I have not prepared myself to accept this path. I have not tied myself to heaven. So nothing can separate me from God. So these people have offered themselves as you know martyrs in different ways. Okay. That's how can we understand that, you know... This verse said, you know, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Okay, you can say that slain from the pleasures of the word, slain from sin, then, you know, appear to sin as dead and no longer participate in that. 
and for this for the testimony which they held. Right? We can take this verse right, and spend few hours talking about it. Right? Because it's very important that we look at this testimony that we we are holding and ask ourselves the questions is my life holding a testimony for Christ or am i just you know living in the world as anybody else you know you go to work there's no distinction between you know John and Chris and Muhammad and you know you know Venkat and you know Raj and all these people they all look the same they all act the same Mina is as you know as uh, Sandesh and you know no big difference between I'm sorry? Kadir. Walash, Ming and you know Chan and all these people. What's the difference between us and them? If it wasn't that we are holding the testimony and we're living by it. And then at the end we're gonna be known by holding testimony. Why is that? Can somebody remember what Christ said about this? As I said, the whole Bible describes itself and ties itself together. It's one unit. What St. John is saying is not different than what Christ has said. Okay, Remember what Christ said, if you deny me in front of people, I will deny you in front of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, So if we hold the testimony of Jesus Christ here on earth by our lives, guess what? He's going to you know, also testify for us in front of his father, in front of his angels. So that verse, or that half a verse, is really important, and we should think about it. Do I hold testimony by my life, by my actions, by my words, by my clothes, by all these things, or just, you know, mix with everybody else? And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Until when, Master, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So, are, are the saints asking for revenge? They sound bitter. <laughs> they sound bitter. That's true. But why? Why do you think they sound upset and bitter? Justice. Okay. But they already gave up and they already sacrificed what they sort of, you know, quote, belongs to them, or what they deserve, or what they, you know, should have on earth. And they're already in heaven, in God's presence, so why would they care? So I wouldn't think justice is, you know, is a good thing, but the final justice and giving everyone according to their deeds definitely is part of all what we all seek, even the saints. But why do you think they're, you know, in heaven and they're asking God, come on, it's enough. Can't you see what's happening on earth? Can't you see all this sin? Can't you see all this evil that's happening on earth? Isn't that enough? Even uh, Lot. What does the Bible tell us about Lot when he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah? That he was, you know, he was not happy. He was not, you know, he was disgusted, you know, but what... what what's happening around him. He was not happy with all the sin around him. If you're a righteous person and you see sin, you can't tolerate that. Right? Remember, Uncle Nazir Marva said in few, I don't know, last year or before in uh, Holy Week, it's like 
you know, a person who is very phobic about being clean can't tolerate anything being dirty and then all of a sudden you dump on him you know uh, garbage truck what thing is going to happen to that person oh well, crazy you cannot tolerate that that's the same way if you and I the more we become pure from the inside the more we cannot tolerate sin and we try to avoid even the, the place where sin may happen so if I go to a place where yeah, people there may you know, go to a party and people there may drink may do something inappropriate they may you know, show a movie that's inappropriate I'm not going to go because I don't want to even come close to sin that's the same thing here so the father said that the saints here are not really uh, requesting for you know revenge, but they're basically asking for God to show the right and to get rid of evil and sin from earth. It's interesting you mention that because this morning I heard a sermon, and you know by one of our fathers, and he says that when we go through tests and trials, okay, they are actually from from the Lord, from God. But there's a reason behind it. And He lets us go through these tests and, and these trials and these tribulations okay, for to teach us a lesson. Although we may not see it immediately, but we see it down the road. So the question is, like, you're, you're kind of tying in you know, how to keep ourselves away from potential you know, sin and so forth. So on the other hand, the sermon this morning states that you know, when, when we go through these trials and tribulations and these tests, you know, there is a reason why. It's teaching us a lesson for something down the road. I, I don't think these two are contradicting. There's a difference between trials, tribulations, and there's a difference between putting ourselves into the path of sin. We pray, do not lead us into temptation. We do not say, you know, do not get us into trials and tribulations. St. James, when he saying, you know, consider every, you know, joy to be in trial and tribulation, he's not talking about sin, being tempted by sin. He's talking about going through hard times, persecution, you know, losing a job, getting sick, you know, uh, having problems, for example, you know, trying to find a, a suitable uh, partner. All these tribulations, that trials that we go through, this is one set of trials being tempted by sin and putting myself in a situation to be tempted by sin is completely different when I, you know when uh, Joseph the righteous was offered sin what did he do? he ran away what did St. Paul tell Timothy? you know run away from, you know youthful thoughts run away, there's a difference between dealing with tribulations difficulties that faces my life and there's a difference between dealing with Temptation and sin. Temptation and sin, I run away from. Tribulations, this runs from tribulations, runs from God. They're different. We tie, we usually put both of them together. But in reality, they're different. I put myself into tempting situations, and I call that tribulations. I open the dish and I watch you know, an X-rated channel. Oh no, God is tempting me. God did not open the dish for you. No, no, I'm not saying God tempts us, but I'm saying we go through these worldly tests. And That's not a worldly test. Well, Going through. Heavenly <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, from same point of view, 
when I put myself into that, that's called temptation. That's not trial. But I'm going in, minding my own business, and, you know, I get hit by a car, you know, and I'm following all the rules and regulations, and, you know, 100% on the correct side, and all of a sudden I get, you know, hit by a car without knowing why. God wants to test me in, you know, something that's a different story. Okay? So that's a little bit different. Again, the other thing is that if we go to the old monasteries, we'll find that a lot of the saints, a lot of the patriarchs are buried under the altars. Again, this is an explanation, you know, execution of this particular verse. Uh, as you remember, the last few weeks when we talked about comparing heaven and the church, we said everything we do in the church is 100% related to heaven and trying to copy heaven and give a picture from heaven here on earth. And white robes were given to each one of them and it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little time until both their fellow servants and their brothers, those about to be killed as they were, should have their number be made complete. Right? So, the church is the body of Christ, right? Is the body of Christ complete? He's the head and we're the body. Is his body complete? Hey, 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 answer, hey, in front of you. No, not yet. When it's going to be complete? Till the last believer is born and whether die or whether raptured or whatever, we don't know. Right? The white robes, again, we're going to read later on that these uh, white robes, you know, represents righteousness and they were, they became white in the blood of the Lamb. And each one has his own robe. So each of us is going to have our own virtues or we're going to, you know, covered with own, our own set of virtues. And if you notice, you find that each one of the saints has their own specialty. Uh, we we go to you know Mary Gerges for certain set of miracles or you know when we need certain type of help we go to Baba Krulus when we need different kind of help we know you know go to Demiana for for different things and you find that you know every saint have their own set of virtues and we learn from them also not just from miracles but we also learn from them different virtues you know whether it's kindness to the poor whether it's you know being pure in life and so on right that's uh, any questions so far? Just one general question. Sure. Is the church's view that these horsemen, if you will, are being, will be unleashed at some point in the future, or they're already being unleashed as we speak? You know, I mean, are we living in those times? Is it is it going to be one future climact, climactic moment, or are we already living in those periods? That's a very good question. So, is it? Uh, are they going to be unleashed or they're already, already living them? I don't think there is one particular, you know, answer. Again, it depends on who you talk to and it depends on the, the opinion. And if you look at these horsemen as the devil's attempt to fight with the church, they've already been leashed. But some of them will take different peaks at different times. Where you first know that the first horseman is already out to conquer... Conquering and to conquer, right? That's Christ. He's already out, 
It's already in the past. He's, he's out there. We already know that the church have been persecuted from day one. Right? Our Lord himself was persecuted and he was killed. Uh, we know that heresies have been out you know, for day one. Read what St. Luke said that, you know, I'm writing these in exact details because some people have been reporting them inaccurately. You know, St. John says that, you know, talks about also all those who do not uh, uh, believe that Christ is, you know, the Son of God are all uh, of the Antichrist. All these things are were happening from day one. Maybe, okay, again, this is maybe and this is you know, you're free to take that or, you know, leave it. Some of them will peak at certain times and they're still going to continue, like persecution. Peaked down, peak again, down, peak again and down until eternity, until, not until eternity, until the second coming, maybe. Heresies keeps coming and going or maybe it's just going in as a ramp function, keeps increasing until the end when, you know, the Antichrist come and faith is going to be very rare in, you know, in the world, Maybe. How it's exactly going to happen, we don't know. But we know that there's going to be persecution. There are going to be spiritual famines and physical famines. We know that there are going to be uh, heresies spread that even control the force of the earth. We know that these things are going to happen. How and when, we don't know. And we should not try to give an exact way of how this is going to happen because from the beginning, we said that St. John is describing heavenly events in human terms. When Christ described these, it's not a whole chapter, it's just, you know, 10 verses. Luke 4, you know, 21, 9, 19, right? So, there are going to be famines and wars, that's it. Are we going through that now? Yeah. And we will go through it. When you were, when, when people were living, you know, the First World War, that was the end of the world. Second World War, this is the end of the world. No, right? but I'm saying all the different things that are happening in the war. We have mudslides that are killing people. We have by the way, uh, I think in the 70s or the 60s, there was an earthquake in China. Reportedly have killed, you know, quarter of a million people or more. Again, these events are going to happen. The issue is, am I ready? If we are truly living at the end of the world, am I ready? It's great to know that the end is coming. But am I ready? It's true. I mean, if I die in a car accident, that to me is the end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? So am I ready? When I'm, when I'm going to get ready? Will I just, you know, use excuses to say, oh, no, this is going to happen in 50, 60 years, or 100 years, or 200 years. It's still a long time to happen. And give myself time. So based on what's going on now, can we say that the Antichrist is already born? Or has been born? No. I cannot, we cannot say anything. We cannot. We, you know, we can go through what people are trying to say. We're going to come through events and the 666 and all that that talks about this. But our goal is not, you know, to give the exact times because we, nobody knows. And God said nobody knows the time or the date or anything. No, not the end of the world. I was just wondering the birth of the Antichrist. Once you know the birth of the Antichrist, you know the end of the world. Period. 
you tell me he was born in, in a year at 30 years and then at three and a half and that's it. He's going to reign for three and a half years, period. Three and a half years. He's going to reign for three and a half years. Is that written somewhere? Yep. Is that a No. We'll get there. We'll get there. Give us time. Anyway, the sixth seal. Let's look at the sixth seal. All right? Let's look at the sixth seal because the goal is to finish chapter six today. All right. No, it's okay. No, we'll go quickly. Khalas Adinal around. <laughs> and when he had opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree, cast from the tiny things, and she was shaken by the sun. And the heaven departed like a scroll of wine, and all the and every mountain and mountain were moved out of their places. Okay, that's fine. Um, again, this is, you know, these events in the sixth seal are similar to Matthew 24, 29, and 33. So you can go back and read that. Right? Matthew 24, from 29 to 33, when Christ is talking about the end of the world. Okay? And, again, a great earthquake. This can be Again, a physical earthquake, as in Zechariah says, about talks about the earthquake that's going to split the Mount of Zion and you know Armageddon and all these all these things, or it can be a great shaking to the church and the whole you know Christian community, and the sun became black as sackcloth. This can happen again physically. All these events can be happening literally, as it's written, or it can be happen spiritually. If we look at it from a spiritual point of view. Who is our son? Christ. And what happens when Christ, you know, became, you know, becomes dark? He will never become dark, but his, the knowledge of Christ, for people to see Christ, it will not be known. So, again, some of the fathers look at this and they say this is most likely toward the end times and toward the, the time of the Antichrist when the not, not, true knowledge of Christ is going to be Darkened and people are not going to know who Christ is because everybody will think that this, you know, imposter is the, you know, is Christ. Right? And sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. Now, who is the moon? If we take that from spiritual sense, sure. if Christ is the sun, who is the moon? No, not not really. More likely the church. Right? The church because we are considered the moon because we only reflect God's light. On us, okay. we do not have light of our own. We don't have any righteousness of our own. The righteousness we have comes from Christ on us, so people can see our righteousness, our His righteousness in us. Okay. So when the moon becomes bloody or look like blood, two things: either it's actual persecution or martyrdom, or even the church itself becomes deformed. And even the knowledge of Christ through the church becomes lukewarm and weak, and nobody really knows Christ appropriately. Okay. So that can be the interpretation of verse six. And now we're going to start seeing that you know there's nothing concrete in what we're saying. Can be this, can be that, because again, nothing is 100% concrete. How can the church be deformed? 
How can he allow the church to be the Lord? A very good question. When you find that huge portions of the church, whether it's the Protestant, whether it's, you know, for example, look at the Protestant church. It's a huge percentage now of today's church, right? Do they have any sacraments? I'm talking about God's church in general. We're not the only church. <laughs> Would like to think that we're only people going to be the only people in heaven, but this most likely is not going to happen. You know, maybe what you know what's happening right now is that imagine you know people living and knowing Christ, but they're not participating in any sacraments. They're not receiving Him, for example, in communion. How can that be? you know, a correct life. So these can be deformities happen to the church and people are living, they think, oh, we're living a great life, but in reality they are missing, you know, important essentials of life. I'm not saying that the Protestant church per se or the Catholic church or whatever, right? Because here we're going to, we'll be talking about it. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth even as the fig tree cast her untimely figs once it's shaken by a mighty wind. Now, the fig tree. We're going to find that the fig tree is mentioned several times, especially when it comes to the Holy Week. There's a lot of mentions for the fig tree. The tree in the Old Testament, or the, I'm sorry, God's people in the Old Testament were represented by three types of trees. The fig tree, because again, if you open a fig, you're going to find that the seeds are all surrounding the center. At the same time, it's very sweet. So, in the Old Testament, God was using the example of the fig tree because his people were sweet to him and as, you know, uh, something sweet. And at the same time, they are united all together around him. They were also represented by the olive tree because the Holy Spirit, uh, represented by oil and the olive tree, if you squeeze it, you know, oil comes, oil comes from from it and Christ himself said I am also the divine so that's another example is divine and the olive tree and the the fig tree like St. Paul talks about you know the true vine and the, the vine that's been you know implanted in the true vine and so on okay so these are three examples of God's people in the Old Testament and three metaphors of, uh, of the church, basically. So when the fig tree, you know, casts untimely figs, that represents, like, you know, the church dropping away, you know, those untimely figs, those believers who did not really mature, become fully believers. So if somebody's waiting... To know God, said, "Oh, I'm still young. I have a long time to know God." And then tribulations come, and the whole earth, you know church is shaken by any events that happen in it. Right? They'll drop and they, you know, leave the church and you know go away. Find, for example, Amba Fulan Ma'abuna Fulan, or Amba Fulan Ma'amba Fulan, and people get so upset they even leave the church. Right? Or, you know, half the servants left the church and no longer come because, you know, they're upset of what happened. These are immature figs that just, you know, dropped because of the 
shaking of the tree. Okay? If we are attached to Christ, we know that there are going to be tribulation, we know there are going to be you know, persecution, we know there are going to be problems inside and outside the church, so we shouldn't let go no matter what happens. Okay? The stars of heaven, who are represented by stars? The high-ranking people in the church can be patriarchs, can be bishops, can be priests, can be just, you know, uh, for example, you know, uh, if we pick on the one denomination versus the other, like, you know, Tammy Baker and, you know, those guys, the bakers that uh, were very popular in the southwest, I don't know whether you guys, uh, east-west, southeast, I don't know whether you guys heard of them or not. He had a huge church in Tennessee and so on, and then he ended up being, you know, caught, you know, committing uh, sex and so on, and uh, using the church money to pay, you know, uh, on these affairs and so on. So these can be considered like big stars falling uh, and causing actually a lot of people to become uh, disappointed and become uh, go away from Christ because of uh, these events. It can be like a bishop or a patriarch or whatever who falls down. Somebody like, for example, Nastur or any of these big bishops or big patriarchs that fell into heresies. These are stars that fall down. And the heaven departed like a scroll when it rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth and the great men and, and, and the rich of the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Okay. Again, this is talking more and more about the end of the earth. As you can see in the seals, we come come close to the end of the earth and then we go back and concentrate on the end days. Um, all right, so the, every mountain. Who are the mountains? Can be sign of nations, can be sign of, you know, mighty people. In the faith, again, in the church, there are certain representations. You know, the, for example, the grass and the, you know, the trees represent different levels of faithful. The hills, the mountains represent also different levels of faithful because, again, the higher you are, the closer you are to God. So the mountains represents those people who are close to God. The islands represents isolated places of wealth, surrounded by water. And again, these can be nations, uh, or these can be rich people, because again, a lot of the islands are used to trade and so on, so they can represent uh, the, the famous and the rich, who are, you know, again, appear as land in the middle of, of the sea. And this is not to indicate that uh, Long Island, Staten Island, all these islands are going to go down. <laughs> Okay, at the end of days, everybody's going to go down, not just these islands. Even East Brunswick? I'm sorry? Even East Brunswick? Even East Brunswick. <laughs> if you go more to Pennsylvania, maybe you'll be safer there. Right. Let, let's notice here. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich, and the chief, and the captains, you know, we're starting from the mighty, all the way to the bondmen and every free man. So whether you're rich or poor, you know, free or slave or whatever, all those people who are in the world 
they're gonna be scared and they're gonna be running away from Christ coming. Imagine between this and between what St. John said at the end of Revelation, you know, uh, last verse, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, amen, yes, come Lord Jesus. There's a big difference between when Christ is going to come. Those who are waiting for him, those who are living a virtuous life, look at the second coming, look at death as something wonderful going to happen to them. Those who do not think about this, those who do not live for this time, when it comes, it's going to be very scary and run away. You talk about death in front of people, and they want to run away from it. They try to portray death into you know, our society today as a beautiful thing, and they try to mask the reality of death from people, because again, nobody wants to face the reality. They're all running away afraid, whether it's the end times or whether it's, you know, our end, you know, moment of, you know, to vanish and to, to die, they're running away scared from it. Okay. If you remember, they're running into the mountains and to the rock of the mountains to hide. Remember who was, who went to the rock, into the mountain to see God's glory and he was very happy to see God? Two people. Moses and Isaiah. Elijah. Elijah. Right? Elijah. 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 Elijah, not Elisha. Elijah. Right? Elijah and Musa. These two, both of them, God, Moses said, you know, God, I want to see your glory. It's like a little child, you know, hanging to his head. I said, God, I want to see your glory. So God told him, you can't see my glory and live. So I'm going to have a solution. I'm going to put you inside a rock, hide on you. I pass, and then you can see what's behind me. You know, and that was a prophecy actually about how we're going to witness or come close to God. And this rock is Christ. And the only way for us to go and see God's glory is that we hide inside, you know, the opening in the rock, you know, his wound on his side, right? So we, when we hide inside Christ, this is the only way for us to see his glory. There's, there's a big difference between when Christ is going to come and people are going to try to hide in the rock, in the rocks, for a different meaning and different purpose, and run away from God instead of going out trying to see Him and meet His, you know, meet Him in His glory and His coming. And they said to the mountains and rocks, "Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him sitting on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb." Again, compare this attitude to the attitude when Christ was on the cross. They're following the same attitude for 2,000 years and they're going to continue to follow the same attitude until the end. God reveals His power and His glory to us every day in different ways. We refuse to see until it's going to come apparent and nobody can deny that. When you find a small wave that kills 230,000 you know, people in an instant, 
you find huge earthquake coming in, I'm sorry, huge, huge uh, hurricane coming in and destroying cities and killing thousands of people. Billions of dollars worth of damage in a matter of hours. And nobody can stop it. Right? And God is giving us warnings. Or you can study the universe, you can study the cell, you can study anything and identify God's glory. We're still treating God as a thief hanging on a cross and not as the God that deserves His glory. But unfortunately, at the end days, no more of this treatment is going to be completely different. And for the great day of His wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? And these are the scary verses that we keep money ourselves with it when we try to deviate, you know, and the devil tempts us. We remind ourselves of these verses that this is, is going to happen. So I might as well go that direction and be righteous so God, when He comes, I'm ready to receive Him and I'm happy to receive Him. As St. John has said at the end, Amen, we're waiting for your coming, O oh Christ, right? The question is, do people understand that when these things happen, that it's a sign from God? And if they say, well, it's a hurricane or a tsunami, it was Mother Nature. But they don't, they don't look deeper into it and say, oh, this is a sign from God. They look at oh, it's Mother Nature. The fool said in their heart, there's no God. In the old days, when disasters used to happen, people used to look to God and cry and seek his forgiveness and they used to repent now when somebody nobody dares in the media and says that this is happening because of our sin nobody dares to say that in the media there are some Christians who said that but nobody listened to them you didn't hear CNN echoing what they're saying or you know Fox News or any of these people repeating what these you know pastors said there are people in America who realize what's happening and they're calling for God's mercy and they're repenting. But the majority of people, they are enjoying life. Our problem is as long as we can give ourselves an excuse and find the rationale behind what's happening, we're fine. As, even if it's not reality, even if it's not reality, we're going to give ourselves excuses. As you said, it's Mother Nature. It's just global warming, we're driving, you know, big cars, whatever. It's an excuse. It's not reality. It's not that God is angry with us because of our sin. Right? Look at New Orleans. What's the big thing about New Orleans today? Getting ready for Mardi Gras. They were destroyed. They were flattened out, you know, drowned completely. And the only thing they can think of is Mardi Gras. They didn't get the message. Crime rate has went up in the whole area around them because they, when they fled away, you know, there were a bunch of, you know, a lot of criminals from that area that moved around, ex, you know, exported to the area around them. And the only thing they can think of is, no, it's not that we should repent, we should build our city as a pure city. No, back to Mardi Gras. That's what's going to happen again to New Orleans. It's not hard to judge what's going to happen. Exactly. So as a nation, we should get the message. Let's forget about 
the United States. Let's forget about big nations. Let's talk about our church. We are faced with tribulations, we are faced with struggles, we are faced with persecution and so on. That's because each one of us is not living a virtuous life. Have we thought about repenting? Have we thought about going back and praying? No. We think about going to the United Nations and requesting for, uh, you know, uh, uh, condemnations of, you know, Muslim governments and so on. Have we learned the lesson? No. Let us learn the lesson first before we complain about other people. Let's learn the lesson. Let's get our life back in track. Let's reconcile. Let's repent, you know, and live a virtuous life. And maybe God will have mercy on us. Okay. Any any comments? Good. Okay. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.